Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. This season's podcast is sponsored by a great new startup called Tweak Life. They have built a well-being hub full of useful information of tweaks that you can make, including mindfulness, nutrition, exercise, managing addictions, improving your finances and even the menopause. The last few years have been really tough for us all. And with this in mind, Louise created this hub hoping to help individuals and businesses offer this to their employees and apply some of these tweaks to make a difference to people's lives. This is free to use, so for more information, please go to tweaklife.co.uk. My guest this week on One for the Road is a 37-year-old man born and raised in New Jersey. In 2020, he was found barely breathing from acute liver and kidney failure. He was rushed to hospital and fell into a coma for almost three weeks. The transformation of where he is today is breathtaking. And I am so proud of this man for how now he inspires people daily to look at their own relationship with alcohol. This episode is the last of the season and one of the most inspiring and powerful. So please welcome Mike Farrier. So Mike, welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. It's a great honour and privilege for me personally to have you on this podcast. Um, We know Sarah Drage, many people have listened to my podcast with her and she's an amazing human being and when she um, brought me to your attention I looked at your story and I felt the same mate so thank you so much for coming on today as my guest. Thank you very much for having me I'm very honoured to be on dude. Well it's, it's my pleasure mate honestly so you've probably listened to a few of my podcasts already and we know that we wind it all the way back so if you don't mind uh, I'd really love to know about how your growing up was, how that was for you and where you lived and all that stuff? So I was born in uh, uh, Livingston, New Jersey and grew up in Kearney, New Jersey, uh, which is, it's the town that I'm uh, I'm back living in now. And a normal kid, I went to Catholic school. My, my father was a construction worker and um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and had a little sister and a my grandmother who lived with us and uh, helped us out with stuff and um, had a, a, a great upbringing in, in that aspect, you know, like a very modest uh, growing up home environment. And I remember great memories as a kid. I'd say maybe around uh, 12, 13 years old. One thing that uh, started to impact my life a lot was, you know, my father and his work life. Uh, he was 
a construction worker, but then ended up owning some businesses and was just never home. That started to, I guess, you know, take a toll on me when I was younger at 13, finding my masculinity and stuff and started to get into trouble, maybe to get attention, things of that, of that nature. But I, I, I had a great upbringing, you know, a great family and, and not much that I can say too bad about, about my upbringing. I do remember at a lot of family parties, you know, one thing that was always big in my family was, was alcohol. You know, my father was uh, a big drinker, but I never, I've never seen my father really drunk, but he, he always drank, you know, probably daily. And my mother never drank, never had, would, would have one drink. She was a completely sober person. I've never even uh, seen her have a beer in her hand my entire, my entire life. But yeah, that was like a, a normal thing growing up here in, in, in America in the eighties, you know, beer cans all over. My little sister used to run around and drink beer cans and stuff, but I hated alcohol. I, I never liked the taste of alcohol. I, it, even as a teenager, I disliked that I used to go into the bathroom at parties and dump it out into the toilet because I, I felt the taste was just disgusting. I'm like, how can people drink this shit? Mm. Um, I, I, I didn't enjoy it as a teenager very much. And I, I also knew I, I, my grandfather had passed from cirrhosis. Uh, I never got to meet him. It was um, uh, on my mother's side. My, my grandfather passed, I believe, the year I was born. And he died in Brazil from liver failure, cirrhosis, all of that. It, probably in a little bit of worse conditions than, than I was in. So, yeah, I, I mean, me, me and uh, my relationship with alcohol as, uh, as a teenager, I just didn't enjoy it very much, even though how, how popular it was at, at that time. Do you think that's why your mum didn't um, drink because of her dad? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Had that much mm -hmm. of an impact. You can understand why as well. So when did you start drinking then? Throughout my teenage years, teenage years, I drink at parties here and there, but it, it didn't seem like it was uh, an issue at that time. It, it, it was more like uh, miscellaneous drugs that teenagers experiment with you know i was having more fun with that stuff but when alcohol started to become a problem a, a serious problem was uh i had a cousin of mine pass away uh who was very much like a brother of mine and we 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 kind of grew up experimenting with things together had went through a lot of similar traumas in our family together our families had issues getting along and a lot of toxic arguing and stuff like that and me and him kind of soaked soaked in that as teenagers you know um and he passed away from uh, a drunk driving accident and it was three blocks away from his house like five o'clock in the morning the driver he was in the passenger seat there was uh the driver had overcompensated thinking a vehicle was coming at him and swerved to the right jumped over the curb and, and went right into a tree and my cousin flew out and it was just a death on impact. And they, they had all been drinking and, you know, partying that night. So how did you tie that, mate? Uh, horribly. Um, I think I, I had collapsed and fainted when I found out the news, you know. It was so unexpected. Me and him had done so many other dangerous things, you know, just uh, experimenting and partying. Crazy nights. I, I just never expected uh, that to be the the way for for things to play out. And I took it, I took it bad. I just, I, I coped with alcohol at that, at that time. And yeah. that was when I started drinking heavily, very, very heavily. Uh, 
and and hard liquor too because like i said i didn't i didn't enjoy the taste of alcohol so beer and things like that weren't you know good enough it would they take too long you know yeah. for for me to get a buzz i'm not trying to wait all day so i i would drink hard liquor you know vodka used to be my my choice of uh drink and um that's when i started drinking heavily to 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 kind of feel numb and i did that for for i'd say like uh two or three years after he passed, you know, um, I moped around drinking heavily. I had a hobby doing music production at the time. And that's like kind of what just kept my head up just a little bit. And um, I just drank and drank and drank and drank. Felt like I was going to be dying from uh, alcohol. I, I was young too. I, I want to say this, this was 2000, uh, 2007, 2009. And I had met somebody. And the saving grace, I think, in my life at that time was I had, uh, I had a child. Um, you know, I met someone and she had gotten pregnant and I had a baby boy that, uh, gave me new light, you know, in life and sparked this new, new, new me that wanted to do better and, um, change myself. And, and I did that when he was born. I'd say a little bit before he was born, but right. Probably three months into the pregnancy, I gave up alcohol completely. And I even went on a religious retreat back then to um, kind of see if something could spark, you know, some some kind of hope. I felt so hopeless uh, without my cousin. And that religious retreat was a very eye-opening experience. You're not supposed to bring cell phones or anything with you. And if you do, they take it from you. And I had, you know, such an issue back then with alcohol as far as the withdrawal symptoms and stuff like that, that I couldn't go on the basis with not having alcohol. And I had been drinking up to the point of uh, the day of the retreat. So I had actually brought vodka with me, you know, on my, my personal self where they couldn't find it and got over there and they took all my stuff and I went to my my room in this church retreat area and i i started drinking my, my problem was i didn't bring enough mm. and uh mid this was friday midday saturday i ran out and i was like starting to freak out you know like oh god i'm gonna have to run out of here and there's have no phones we're in the middle of the woods wow. uh, we didn't get to see our way there um so i didn't know where i was and um there was a priest there named uh Father Nuno, he was a great, great guy. And he had me, he saw I was in distress and pulled me to a, a confessional and sat down and talked to me. And I, I broke down and told him what I had done, that I had brought alcohol with me. I said, I'm like, I feel like I got to go. And um, he calmed me down. And I ended up, you know, breaking down to him and just letting a lot out. I let out so much, it helped out with my withdrawal. It, it soothed me, you know, to to let out all that emotion and and all the things I had been holding in for a while to him. And the next day, we all went back on a bus, and I kind of made like a vow that I was, you know, gonna try my best to to be the best uh, father that I could be, be the best man I could be. Stop drinking, and um, went back home and didn't drink anymore uh, for for about a year no no alcohol and wow. it was great you know like life was beautiful i had a, a baby boy uh born 
I had found my first like real job, which was in construction doing drilling. And um, even though it was very low paying, I felt I took so much pride uh, in my work because I had a I had a son that was coming. So, and I'd say after that year, I got I got I got comfortable. You know, it was like uh, had the job, had financial control, uh, stability. You know, everything that somebody would ask for to to have when when having a son. And at that point, was like, great. That's a that's a perfect time for me to have a a drink. Now I'm like, let me relax. So I started, you know, drinking, um, and on a weekend thing. It, you know, it was on the weekends after a long week at work, and eventually, very fast, it just became a coping mechanism again. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say then a year, six months, I I was back to drinking, getting home from work, having drinks daily you know and uh going through little withdrawals here and there you know like trying to juggle balance uh, all the anxiety and all the the physical symptoms that come along with balance and being drunk when when you don't have to function away from work and Mm. and doing those things and i i coasted in life like that uh, for about five six years i had another son and um Alcohol was was an issue, even in those five six years, because it it just it helped the relationship I was in become unstable, more arguing, you know, um, anxiety between both people, just an un, uh, unhappy, unstable environment of two people using a substance to kind of numb their their daily problems and uh, just making a worse situation for themselves, and it just went like that on and on and on. And with all the, even with all, with, with all those issues, I was still so lucky in life that I, I, uh, my drilling job, I'd got an opportunity to, to join the union, which is just such a, an amazing jump of professional experience in, in the work I was in out here. I had an opportunity to do that. And it just, that changed my life big time. It it brought more stability, at least financially, uh, as the you know, the more stability I had a little bit in some success in in life, the more uh, unstable uh, some other aspects were were becoming. And from there, I got to I got to buy my first home, which was was which was an amazing thing for for my family at the time. And same thing, coasted a couple more years like that, and it it got to a point where the kind of life that I was living, which was never a party life, I was never a party guy. I was always a family man, never out at the bar drinking. That's That was never my thing. I'd always be the type I'd have uh, two, three bottles delivered to my front door from the liquor store, you know, um, but I was always drinking at home, barbecuing or doing little stuff like that. You know, um, I became so introverted because of uh, the drinking. I didn't even want to be out in, in public, really. You know, I'd, I'd just be drinking, drinking at home and thinking I was decompressing all the time. And as I'd say that I got to like a, a nice little peak point where I felt comfortable with um, the success and, and the stability I had. At that point, I was like physically in distress. I, I gained so much weight. I was probably like 230 pounds. I was always tired, always moody, very irritable. I was a nasty person. You know, I, 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 I'd like to think that I tried my best at that time 
always, which was my, my main goal was to, to be the best dad I could be and give my kids the stability that my dad gave me, even though he wasn't at home. But I, w- I always told myself, my goal is I will be home. My kids will always see me. Uh, I'm not the dad that's going to be out there, you know? And with, with all of that being said, it's like everything came crashing down in the, in the structure of my family. Things got just toxic. The, the, the dynamic wasn't working anymore between me and my kid's mother. And it, it, it became overwhelming. And, um, towards the summer of 2019, things had just gotten bad. Everything was on the verge of ending between us. And I felt very like I had lost the one thing I've been working for all those years that, that, that initiated that sobriety was gone. You know, that's, that's how I felt. It was like, uh, that's it. My family's over every, you know, the money doesn't matter. The work doesn't matter. Those things come back, but the, the foundation of everything that everything was built on the family is, is now, is not over. And that, that made me extremely depressed. It was just, I felt like a failure. I was like, I fucked this all up. I destroyed everything, you know? And, and, and even though um, we both had, had our mistakes, I, I, that's how I looked at it. I, I fucked this all up. I fucking ruined everything. Everything went to shambles. This is, this is horrible. And I, I felt like I lost purpose. Even while I had, you know, two kids, I was, I was very scared of losing everything I had worked for from my family to, to my house, to just everything and just seeing everything just taken. And it felt like it was, and I was living in, in fear of that in, in my head. I got to a point in October of 2019 that I went to work and I told, I told my boss, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I can't work. I, I can't even think. I can't be here. I operate heavy, heavy machinery. And, uh, you know, mental distress like that, you, you just, I was like, I can't do it anymore. And he was, he was an amazing guy. And, he was just like, go take time off, do what you have to do. And I kind of stayed at home and things got worse. I drank more. I, I, I thought I was going to take this time to get on my feet. You know, I got this. I'm going to, I'm going to wean off the alcohol. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, plus there was a nasty incident that happened at work where I got to work one day and I started having these hives blow up. I'm talking about the size two, three inch wide welts that started to appear on my chest, on my neck, all over my body. I had these welts and instantly I'm like, I know this is from the alcohol. My, my first instinct is I'm having a reaction to my liver, uh, not breaking down the alcohol properly. And I start to become very fearful at that time, you know, as I get on my phone and start Googling stuff, you know, about liver stuff, which I had done for years. You know, I had known so much already from uh, drinking and research, but I, I started to feel it and see it on my body this time. And I knew, okay, you're taking it further than you ever have in the past, uh, pushing your body with the amount that you're drinking. and the, my reaction to that, which was, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, I was, I, I knew I had to wean off alcohol properly or I could die, especially the amount that I was drinking. 
I left work that day. I went home and I took two Benadryl and drank vodka. And um, the welts went away, but I started to get this taste in the back of my throat that I, I researched that um, it just tasted like battery acid. It tasted like a chemical. And I'm like, where's this taste coming from? It's not anything I'm eating or ingesting. It's, it's coming from inside. And that, that's when I, I, I knew my, my body was, was starting to, to shut down. And um, at home, as I thought I was going to be weaning off alcohol, I just drank more and more and more every, every single day. I slept most of the time. I wasn't even actually walking. I'd wake up. The withdrawal was so bad. I'd wake up. My heart would be a million miles an hour. I mean, so fast. I couldn't breathe sometimes. I'd wake up and be like, <sighs> talk about like sleeping, but getting no sleep. I, I, I'd wake up and just gasping for air sometimes. And the first thing I needed to do to stop this my body in this distress and almost hyperventilating sometimes and shaking was grab a fucking pint of vodka and I'd start chugging it first thing in the morning before even brushing my teeth. I chug this down, almost vomiting somewhat while, while trying to swallow it. And it's coming back up because my body's like, <laughs> get this shit out of me. It does. It's rejecting it. And I'm forcing it down to, calm these symptoms that are that are occurring and after a little bit of doing that and i'd get down i'd say about a something like that about a pint everything would calm down heart rate cool thinking more organized now anxiety down it's like uh the drunk man's clarity goes to show how much your body needed the alcohol wasn't it yeah oh it needed it how old was you here mate this was 2019 so i was 35 uh, just turned 36 was your partner drinking as well? Because you blame yourself for the breakdown of the relationship. But I think I heard at the beginning that you were both drinking. So Yeah, she was drinking as well. We both drank a lot. And I take my responsibility for, for my end. I, you know, I've learned that that's all I can kind of do. I, I think as a total, the end of the relationship, the problems we had were definitely caused by both of us. And the the dynamic that we had with alcohol you know it was very just self-destructing to to any kind of family and relationship so you know i take my responsibility for for what had happened on on that end and then where things got scary was we had a you know it was a nasty relationship where two people were drinking and didn't get along anymore and were felt victimized and we're coping with alcohol and sometimes there'd be a good moment and a calm moment because you'd be drunk at the right moment. And then all it takes is like one person to be a little more drunk than the other, a little less drunk than the other. And then it's like, everything's a disaster and everything just, you know, uh, went, went downhill. But at, at 36, when I started to get sick like this, I was, I started to get worried and I didn't, I didn't want to tell nobody about this. You know, I, I, I talked to my super at work. He knew I was having problems drinking, but nothing in the way that what was really going on. And my mother knew about it. I'm very close with my mom and my partner knew about it. And um, I just didn't, I didn't want to talk. I was very ashamed of myself. I felt disgusted with myself. Couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. And 
I don't know. I just didn't want to tell anybody to the extent of where I was with alcohol at that time because I knew that I would have to face getting help. And I didn't want that shit. I, I didn't want to stop. I, I, as much as I kept saying, I'm like weaning off, I'm weaning off. It got to a very weird point where trying to wean became the reality of me trying to wean off became a, a illusion where I started to become sick because my liver wasn't breaking down the alcohol. And when these, when these toxins and things were building up, my, my belly was swelling. My belly was like the size of a beach ball. I couldn't even get up off the couch. I, I remember having to try to like swing myself up at one point just to get, to get myself up off the couch. And I wasn't gaining weight necessarily like in my arms or legs. It was all massive belly swelling, very, very painful. Like mm. almost feels like it almost feels like you're pregnant. Yeah. yeah. If I, that's, that's how I felt. I'm like, it felt like that. And yeah, and at that time, you you know, didn't you, that you're in the shit? Yeah, I knew I was in the shit. You just know, and and, and it's that sort of double edged sword. Is like, is it too late? Have I gone too far for me to be like this? Then you drink off the back of that as well because you can't handle those feelings. Exactly. Yeah. So, so at what point did it get to? Did you have like an intervention, or what happened then? There was no no intervention. There was. There was uh, about two weeks before Christmas. I woke up one morning and that's when it hit me. I looked in the mirror and my eyes were yellow and not a light yellow, not a, a little shade of yellow. They in one night went from white eyes to highlighter yellow. My eyes were, my eyes were glowing. I, I was like, holy shit. What the fuck happened? I, I, I almost fainted when I saw myself in the mirror. I started playing with the bulbs, like something's wrong with the lighting in here. This, this is not real. And I, my heart was, I thought I was going to fucking faint. And I almost fainted when I saw myself. I'm like, that's when it hit me. I'm like, you're fucking dying. Here you are. Yes. You're dying now. Now you're dying. And I still, I still, from what you said before, had this, this inner conflict of screaming, help. I need help. I want to stop this. I don't want this anymore. This is, this, this was, this was like a, like a slow, painful, torturous death that I wouldn't wish on anybody. Like what I was doing to myself, you can't even come up with torture in, in your imagination from the things that were happening to my body. And I just kept inflicting more and more and more while while knowingly and knowing I'm doing this wanting to stop scared to actually get help and scared to face all those demons that had just been packed away like I I I knew that it would only take full surrender for in this matter where I was uh, for anything to happen and I think that where I was I just felt so convinced I I I, I felt convinced like I'm going to get myself off the alcohol. Okay. Like when my, when my eyes got, when I saw my eyes yellow, I went on Amazon. This is crazy retarded. I went on Amazon and I go and I order a pack of liver cleanse pills and they get over there the next day and I start taking them and I'm like, okay, this is going to milk thistle. Let's make a whole little stir pot of great holistic medication that could actually maybe get my liver jumping in the right direction. And that wasn't, you know, it was all lies to myself at the point where I was. And with my eyes yellow, 
I, I still continued drinking. The only person that knew about my eyes being yellow was my partner. Like I had said, the relationship had uh, become so toxic. We, we, we weren't talking. We weren't getting along. That even with her seeing me in that kind of distress, it was it just she just left me alone. Also with me kind of requesting. So, you know, like, leave me alone. And things got, this was right around by towards uh, Christmas time. She had didn't want, she didn't want anybody. The problems we were having, she didn't want anybody at the house. We usually always have family over. And another, another big problem that was just uncomfortable, which I'm sure a lot of people that are, uh, we weren't married, but I'm sure a lot of people that are together face is that when, when something like that happens and you're kind of in the process of splitting up and two people are drinking a lot, you got to sit there and like face each other every day. It's just an un, unhealthy, unhealthy environment. And, um, it's, it's a topic that's like hard to talk about because I, I got to a point where my eyes were yellow and I was, I went from drinking to dying. And when I was on my couch, I was dying right around January 5th, 6th. I was dying on my couch. I wasn't getting up. I wasn't even able to get up for drinks anymore. At that point, I was laying there a couple of days before my eyes had even become more yellow. My skin turned yellow a highlighter yellow. I had a bruise on my on the side of my body, uh, right by my liver, that was probably the size of a fist. And I, I just, you know, you could tell my, my liver was like shutting down. Um, but I was very much like in a very uh, dream, uh, hallucinating state. I didn't know what was going on. I, I, at that point, I didn't even know I was... It, I didn't know I was dying from drinking. I was like in this altered state of reality, starting to have trouble breathing, starting to feel my heart rate go from extremely fast and the withdrawals to feeling like it was beating slower and slower. And there was no help called for me. You know, I I just laid there and I laid there like that for two days. My kids, you know, running around, my my partner at the time walking around doing her thing, just kind of ignoring me, leaving me in my place. So when you say there was no help call, do you mean she didn't ask for help, like get any medical help for you? Yeah, that's how I feel. I feel like in the state, in the state that I was in those two days, I was in this, this, this state of dying. I, I, you know, it's, it, I wasn't sitting there with a drink, no. eyes open. I, I was like spewing out the mouth, black coffee grounds i don't know if you've heard of this before I have, yeah. but it, you know these these black coffee grounds it, i hadn't eaten in probably like a week i hadn't used the bathroom in probably two weeks neither mm. one or number two and these black coffee grounds is vomiting with, was profusely coming blood mixed in with it and all of this happening and you know like i said you know i wasn't able to make any decision for myself in the state that I was in, I was not able to think clearly at that time. I was confused. I, I, I felt, I felt drunker than I had ever felt. I, it, it just, everything was foggy and didn't make sense. And I was confused and, you know, little did I know that's what's happening is when your liver is failing and these, these toxins are going through your body and the bile starts to build up and the pneumonia levels start to build up in your brain because they're, the toxins are going into your blood, you start to lose your mind. You start to actually hallucinate and, and see things and don't make sense. You know, your brain is now affected by all the toxins that your liver didn't break down from the alcohol. And my saving grace 
was my mother had noticed that I hadn't been on Facebook for two days. She noticed my messenger was off and she reached out. She called the house to try to speak with my partner and eventually got my son on the phone and said, you better go get Mike on the phone right now to talk to me. And I need to hear his voice or I'm calling 911 and you tell your mother that. And my, my son went, tried to do that and said I couldn't talk. And then when my mom found out that news and she had a, some kind of feeling that something bad was happening, she right away got my partner on the phone and said, get a fucking ambulance there now or I'm fucking calling the cops and this is going to be a big thing. And ambulance came. I, re- I remember laying on the floor and just taking these little gasps of air like, and I really felt like at that moment, I was like, I'm, I'm dying, you know, in my head. I felt like I was dying. And still, even feeling like that, not even really being able to walk, laying flat, the, the paramedics get in there and they're like, let's go. And I'm like, you're not taking me anywhere. You know, like I, I still mustered up energy to, to say no. I still argued to leave and said I was okay. And I still, I looked at him and I'm like, you can't just take me because I'm not okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm okay. And unless I committed a crime, you can't take me. And I remember one paramedic looked at me and he's like, who's the president? And I was so confused. And I said the wrong president, you know, um, I said, I said Barack Obama. And then he's like, no. And now he's like, so sorry to tell you, but we're taking you against your will. I wasn't able to walk. They put me on something where they slid me out. And the last thing I remember was getting in the ambulance and just throwing up more and more and more of um, just blood everywhere. It was like uncontrollable vomiting. And like that, that's all I remember that uh, from that moment when I pulled out of the, out of the house. Wow, mate. I mean, um, what brought you to my attention was the pictures of you in the hospital and, and you did look like you was on the edge of death. Really disturbing to see and all the symptoms that you, you talk about. How much was you actually drinking then per day to get to there? At that point, I was drinking like uh, I'd get a six pack of Twisted Teas. It was actually like, like the only alcohol that kind of seemed to taste okay. And I used to get a, a 1.75 liter bottle of Ciroc vodka. That used to be like my choice of vodka. And I believe it's 35% alcohol, right? So it's not like your full-blown other heavy hitters that aren't flavored. But for me, it was easier to get down. And out of that 1.75 liter bottle, I was probably drinking a liter out of that a day for five, six months, you know, give or, give or take a little bit, some days more, some days less, but around, around there, you know, about a 750 mil to a liter I was drinking a day. Well, do you know what I is stirring up for me? I was drinking that for years. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I, I, I would buy a liter of vodka because I, a bottle wouldn't be enough. And I felt worse that I drank a bottle. So for me, it was like, well, if I don't drink the liter, I've done well. And it, none of the science added up, Mike. Do you know what I mean? It was because I would drink more than a bottle. So I don't know what I was doing. But there were days that I got up and the liter were gone in the morning. You know, I didn't realize by the time I'd done the liter, I didn't realize I'd 
finished it. I just passed out. But if there was a little bit, and I kind of had my own sort of measure of what was left, if I was all right or not, but it would always be well over a bottle. But what scares me or what makes me feel extremely lucky is that I was doing that for years. And we can see what, you know, accumulative drinking did to you over six months. I just feel we're both bloody lucky, mate. Do you know what I mean? We're so lucky. Very lucky. So... How long was you in hospital for? Um, I got into Claremont's hospital January seventh, and right away when I when I got there, they they put me in an induced coma, and I was in the hospital till the end of January. I want to say I think I went home January thirtieth, thirty first. And is this two thousand nineteen? This was two thousand twenty. Walking into the yeah, and walking into the new year. The first hospital I got to, uh, it was a dangerous scenario for me because they had no liver specialist there. And they had, uh, they had me in a room with all these cameras hooked up to different hospitals with other liver specialists that would watch me through a, through a camera. The induced coma, all that did was stop me from going into cardiac arrest because of the withdrawal and the, how my body was shutting down from the alcohol and, uh, you know, the whole nine, a respirator catheter and all kinds of ends and just painful i can remember a lot of pain even with all the drugs they had me on you know they induced my coma i i've went through all my medical work they used fentanyl and i i i remember so much pain vivid vivid uh pain where i couldn't even scream for for the pain so yeah i was in i was in that coma and i i i want to say i woke up uh January uh, 27th, and I got transferred hospitals. I got very lucky. The hospital that I was in that didn't have a liver specialist, they told me, I mean, they told my mom, they told my whole family that there was nothing they could do. I couldn't get a liver transplant because you need to be six months sober here in the States to, to qualify for a liver. So if you're dying from a failing liver because of alcohol, you're not going to get a liver. So... As I was sick at that hospital, my, my, my stomach had continued to just swell. I, I forgot the medical term for it, but it's basically, even though they had bags hooked up to me everywhere, I wasn't still going to the bathroom. This massive swelling, just, you know, I'm laying there on a bed. I got to 268 pounds. I, I was like a job of the hut on the bed and all kinds of things hooked up, feeding tube. It just holes everywhere that you could, you could uh, imagine. And, by by some very lucky lucky odds, my godmother had known someone at the other hospital at University Hospital that knew there was a liver special, a whole hepatology department there, and they were able to transfer me over. And when I got over there, they did a procedure. They told they told my family I was going to die. They're like, you know, the odds of him living are so slim. You know, my mother started to prepare for my funeral. She started to financially, everything that she could uh, think of. There were some family members that had very much hope and some that, that, you know, were from what the doctor said, the odds for me to come back from where I was at wasn't, wasn't going to really happen. They tried a procedure where they, they poked these holes in my stomach um, to relieve pressure because I, I had fever. I had an infection going on. It was all kinds of things going on. 
uh, this fungal infection from the hospital itself. It's just like a catastrophe. And they poked these holes in my stomach and they, they basically drained me. They drained the fluids building up in my body. And in doing that, there were also talks about trying to cut, cut me open to remove the, the fluids. But generally people don't survive that, that procedure. They, they bleed to death. It's just, it, it doesn't work good. But when they did these holes, there was somewhat of a turnaround where my body, uh, my liver didn't continue to get worse. It stopped. It just stabilized. And when it finally stabilized was, I guess, when some hope had come up by the doctors, but I was still, I was still asleep. Uh, I just, I remember towards the end of January being woken up to have my respirator taken out. And I was still in a, a, a like a dream state coming out of my coma. And let me tell you, talk about pain, you know, like uh, removing the respirator and then removing a, a, a rectal catheter. Okay. Like I say these things because they're no joke. They're like the, this is a torturous experience that I, that I had. Uh, I, I was handcuffed. I had bruises all over my arms because they had to handcuff me because of the pain. Even while I was asleep, I would rip out lines and rip out catheters and rip out things and, and, and harm myself in, in distress while in a, in a coma. And when I, when I woke up, I remember I was so thirsty. Was so thirsty. I didn't drink anything in almost a month. I was like, felt like there was sand in my mouth. And, um, a nurse brought me ice cubes and that, that morning they had offered me a lasagna. And I, I woke up in the, like the, the most amazing spirits. I felt, I felt amazing. Like at least inside, I felt great. I felt rejuvenated. I don't, I don't know what it was. I felt like I had died and been reborn. It, 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 like I had opened my eyes and everything I experienced in my sleep, I didn't process at that time. It was very much like a, I felt like I was awake kind of uh, asleep and it was just not even worth processing that at that time. I just woke up with, and, and embraced this feeling of refreshness that I had. I woke up smiling, basically, I think in my head, you know, like I, I, I felt amazing opening my eyes. It felt, it felt great. It was like a rebirth. That's, that's the, the best way I could describe it. But when I woke up, they said, you're, you're in big trouble and we can't get you with a new liver. Your, your liver is stabilized and it stopped getting worse, but where it's at is still there's a there's a scale they use here in America. It's called a, ma, a madre or madres effect number. It's like a score they give for your liver. I want to say like 48 is is a, a high score of where there's liver failure, and I was at like 75. My morbid rate at that like uh, that I saw in my hospital paperwork was like 92 percent something. You know, uh, uh, chance of death. You know, I had like a very small chance of, of survival, but I, I didn't feel that way inside. I, I felt amazing. You know, I, I was breathing and I was tasting, I was like experiencing these, these little things just seeing and, and the smells that I was uh, having and the tastes and, and the thoughts. It was like, uh, it was, it was like the spark of brain activity again for me. It was like, uh, like coming back into the world. So my spirits were like, great. I was like, great. I made it. You really fucked up this time, Mike, but you're here. I was close, you know, and this one, this one doctor, 
she was so amazing. And, and the nurses at this hospital that were taking care of me were all such amazing people. Those people go so unrecognized in the, the love and what they put into their work to, to save lives, even just taking care of people and get, keeping them in good spirits. It, they were amazing people there. And this one, this one doctor, she kept telling me, you're okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to get better. And this other doctor came in from a different department from an I, he was uh ID, which is a, uh, he came over to this fungal thing that I had going on from a respirator. They thought there was something going on with my blood. And he came over and he's like, I don't know what she's telling you, but you're probably not going to live through this. I'm letting you know the reality that there you're not getting a liver anytime soon. And you're nowhere out of the woods. Your, your, your liver is horrible, in a horrible state. And he's like, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I got really upset. I was like, there's, why are you trying to upset me? I feel great. I was like, let's get the other doctor back in here. This is uh, in their thoughts. And I still just stayed in, um, in good spirits. And what was crazy is I woke up and COVID just landed here. It was like my, my parents started uh, coming to visit me, family, and they made them wear these robes and all types of stuff. And the, the dark side of what happened when I woke up, which I'd like to share and I won't get too much into it, but the humbling experience of waking up and not being able to walk, okay? It was hard just using my fingers when I woke up because I had been asleep for you know three weeks and I couldn't feed myself and I couldn't feel my feet and my feet looked like elephant trunks. They, 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 they looked like elephant feet. They were just like huge from all the water buildup, all the water retainment in my body. And I couldn't get up. I even went to like try. I saw a falling hazard wristband on me. I went to try and nothing moved. It was like such an odd feeling. I'm like, this is so weird. I can't feel anything. And then a moment of a realization comes when I, you know, I eat my lasagna and I'm like, wow, this is great. The lasagna is great. And then five seconds later, I'm like, I got to use the bathroom. And it's like, oh God, here I am, a young man, you know, I'm 36 years old. And how embarrassing to have a group of nurses come try to pick you up, you know, and take you to the bathroom where you could barely hold yourself up, even, you know, to do what you got to do. It was, it was very humbling. It was embarrassing to say the least. And I asked my nurse, I'm like, what, what'd you guys do to me when, before you woke me up? And he, he said, he's like, because of the amount of toxins that were in your body and the bile buildup. We had to, one, we, we performed, a, uh, I think it's like a, an enema. Like he's like, we had to clean out everything there, get everything out that was built up there. And there was this medication called lactulose and it's a, a kind of laxative. But what it does is you take it and it gets the toxins from your stomach, from your blood, and it, it gets everything to build up so you can release it through your body, you know, by going to the bathroom because your liver is not doing that work. So this medication, they'd give it to me and instantly I'd have to go to the bathroom. Like it was horrible. It was, they, I remember I had a little patch on my back and they would put the number of times I go to the bathroom to keep count. And I was just like, I think one day it was like 28 times. And I'm like, you know, people carrying me all 28 times, me hitting my button, praying people make it in time. You know, as a young man going through this stuff, it's like, this is what uh, I never thought I'd have these experiences. You know, I was like, it was just so, so humbling. 
I just sat in my in my thoughts facing what what I had did, what I what what I had went through, and you know, uh, full surrender. You know, like help anyone who can help me, please help me and and guide me in whatever direction I need to go here. That's how I felt at that time. I felt, you know, in full full openness to everybody's opinion and how I could save my life and live. Desperation, really, in it. It's like you you got to a point. It's like right, okay, like you fought to go into hospital, and now you were like, please help me. I, I'm in desperate need of your help now. So, Mike, honestly, I could talk to you for hours, but I always like to keep these like quite compact and. Your story is so amazing. Let's start to bring it round to where you start to recover now and things got better for you. So I, um, they sent me home from the hospital because of COVID uh, within like three or four days of waking up. They were like, if you stay here, you know, the odds of uh, you surviving your, your immune system so low. If you get COVID, you're definitely going, you're not going to survive. Your immune system won't be able to fight it. And they didn't know very much about it at the time. So they sent me home and that's where my recovery process started. I had a nurse that would visit me once a week and I had my mother who helped me and my father and my two boys, my sons who were, who were amazing in my recovery. And they sent me home with a port. I had to, uh, they put a port in my arm, a uh, pick line that ran to my heart so that I could do my own IV infusions and medication treatment at the house by myself. And recovering, I had to do like four infusion treatments a day. I laid on my couch. It took me probably uh, three to four weeks where I was at a physical therapist coming by. I was walking again. My yellow skin started to like flake off. I was taking 16 different medications, starting to eat normal foods and just walking again was amazing. Being able to take care of myself where, you know, before people had to bring me little pee bottles, stuff, you know, like those hospital things and um, being able to get up and go use the bathroom. I had a walker. I went from a walker and then I went to a cane and it was, it was like in the whole process, I was smiling through all of this. It felt, it felt like I was a little kid learning everything again. It, it really, it was that. And I, I had that outlook. I had some frustrating moments in that, you know, there were times I had issues with my IV and it was a fight. Believe me, it was like a, a big fight getting through that recovery process. But I kept my head up. I'm like, how worse can it get? Where you Look where I was and I'm at least home treating myself with some medication, eating and walking. So my spirits were just always so up and this is where the story might get a little bit difficult, you know, like four months it was probably four, four to five months after I learned all those things again, I recovered again. Like I, I fully, uh, I didn't fully recover, but my liver was functioning again. Let's use that term because that's what my doctor had told. And in these four months, I was home just with my family because of the COVID pandemic, I was going through extreme mental health issues, kind of just kind of not having any kind of social activity in my life, feeling in despair, but with a great outlook to the end result of my recovery, let's say, right. But I'm such like a high energy person. I, I always want stuff and I want it now. And I remember even at that time, I was so humbled by everything I had went through and just the pressure in my head, which I gave myself 
but just the pressure in my head that when I started to think in my head, okay, I'm going to start, you know, dating again. My skin had turned white. My eyes were white again. Doctors said it could take two, three years to happen. But it miraculously, my, my liver took a turnaround that within two to three months, my eyes were white. And by four to five months, my, my liver was in stable function, full stable function on a blood test. Clear reading. My liver worked like everybody else. And when I heard that news, it was like news I had been dying to hear, right? I had been dying to hear for so, so long. And even at that time, and this is just how the way that my head was working and the pressure that I kind of felt like that I needed to get out and go back into society, meeting people. And I'm like, okay, my liver is functioning normally. Now I can go back and kind of go out and mingle socially. And in my head, I had already thought that the the event was going to arise where I would be in a social setting, either meeting a woman or meeting friends that I confronted in my head what decision I would make if I wanted to have one drink. And even after all I had been, all I had experienced, and when the doctor said my liver was stable, but we don't know your result here, what's going to happen if you're going to still die or not, you know, if it's going to still go back worse, this can take a turn around anytime. And I got into this like mode in my head where I was okay with confronting me having another drink again. And I thought that was insane. I thought it was like crazy. And I kept saying I wasn't, I wasn't scared to die, but I felt like it could possibly happen even at that point. And I went out and I had drinks and it was a scary, um, a scary, a scary point for me and for my family. You know, they were terrified. My mother was terrified. Like I, I can't even uh, describe you know, how terrified my, my mother was for me, but I, I had felt like, like I could possibly die. And all those years that I spent drinking to like numb things, I was like, if if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna I'm gonna die doing what I want, having fun. And I went on to like this little toxic journey with alcohol again for a couple of months, like I'd say two or three months, and it was it was horrible. I I I started to like feel the the those those symptoms, like uh, like the taste in my mouth, and all these things caught me. And I saw like how I felt like I was searching for myself, but I felt like at the same time here I am self destructing again. Here's everything like. Uh, happening all over again, but I'm not depressed this time. I'm saying I'm like, but I'm okay with life. Like I'm happy with life, but still I've given myself a new set of circumstances in life where dealing with alcohol is not the same as it is for anybody under the health conditions. I put myself through the, those extremes. And, um, it was, it was crazy. I, I, I led that for a while. I had gotten in a relationship, uh, with somebody. I met someone at that time that I fell in love with. And that person didn't have alcohol in their life and um, went through like a big change in uh, that, that relationship where alcohol was cut out and taken out of the picture. I had stopped and just started living without it again. And it's, it's like, uh, I don't know if you can relate to this, Dave, or how it is, because some people in my family, you know, I've, I've either family or friends or even strangers i said you know how how crazy could you be in the past to have even tried that again mm. right like what like even to dabble in that and i feel like there's this inner conflict sometimes 
of like a, a authority I feel in my life or subject to feeling like I can't experience something like a rule, you know, like you will. Okay. I've obviously uh, accepted that alcohol is horrible in the terms of, of my life for health, for the destruction that it caused the, the clarity that it takes away. Like I, I enjoy my sober self now so much. I've gotten to know this side of me that in the past, even when I've tried to have a drink in moderation, the way it makes me feel is almost guilty to the person I enjoy now, which is the sober me. And that was like uh, another like thing to face. And I guess that's like something I feel like I'm going to face for the rest of my life is this sense of, can I accept that something is not good for me? I'm fully aware of that. And can I accept that it's just a better life without it, you know, a hundred percent a better life. I, I feel so amazing without it. Can I be humble enough for the rest of my life to like say that that's going to be bad for me and I don't want to do it? I think the thing is, Mike, is is that whole thing when you drank the second time, when you knew what it done, you knew how it affected your family. Like people say, oh, fuck it, that kind of thing, right? But in essence, that's fuck me. Yes, sir. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So when you look at it like that, you've got to look at how many people you're helping now with your story. And it's at this other end of the scale. I mean, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are grower drinkers. And, you know, I, I, I was more on your level, but I didn't reach the stage of you, you know, turning yellow, being in hospital. But, you know, I, I was hardcore. But I realized that when I stopped drinking, I realized that I was able to help others with my story and my experience. And that really pulled me along. And I'm at a state now, Mike, that I won't ever drink again because I realize how valuable my story is to others, but also how valuable I am to myself. And this is about you loving yourself enough to not do that again. You're a father. You're an amazing man. And you have so much humbleness and so much to give that no one listening to this will want to hear of this. You know, you go in there again. And I always believe it's about how we feel about ourselves, Mike. It's yeah. how we feel about our, our true selves. And you, you're enough, man. You, you're more than enough to do this. You really are. And you can, you can keep on this straight there's never a finish line ever this is why we have to work so hard at it you know sometimes daily sometimes you can go a month and glide along and it's okay but it's work and that is why so many people struggle because it's such an addictive drug and it, it whispers in your ear doesn't it it you know like you even after all that time you're still rationalizing why you should have another drink and whatever. But for me, it's a non-negotiable that I just can't do that anymore because of the consequences. And and that is how I've got through. And it's weighing up the odds, Mike. You're a dad as well. And but more importantly, it's like you you're you. You're here. You're you're alive. You've escaped death. 
and you're a lovely bloke, you know, and you shine the light to so many people, but it's about you looking in the mirror at yourself and, and seeing that light and going, do you know what? I'm worth every single moment of this sobriety, this incredible escape. Those were things that, that, that I faced along in, in that recovery process, you know, was learning and going through in my head, like, Am I like, you know, I'm worthy of this, right? I'm worthy of this, this, this other chance. Um, I got to be worthy of it, right? I'm here. When, when I woke up the next day, second day that I was at the hospital, Kobe Bryant had passed and it shocked me. You know, I was in my hospital bed, like, wow, look, like I'm here alive. And this great, great man, great father, great family person, amazing, amazing person just passed. And I, I almost had a little bit of a, a guilty feeling a little bit like what well, like why am i here like what well, how could this happen what am i doing here hanging out in this situation you know cheating this situation that i i i got out of you know like and that was something that had come up while i was recovering right was like i started to uh a lot of people had started to do TikToks and stuff, but I didn't do that. I, I was just recording myself and getting to know myself again, you know, like uh talking to myself in the can in the camera, building up self-esteem like that. Um, it was like a therapy session, me and my phone talking to myself and recording things. And it built to a, a point where when I had went out drinking again after what had happened to me, and I was telling people what had happened to me. Cause I'm out socializing at that point and I'm telling people and they're like, holy shit. And, and, and I see the looks on people's faces and I'm like, I was just in the coma five months ago and here I am, you know, and I see the looks on people's faces and the way that their eyes kind of lit up when they heard what I had to say. And when I started to see that light and the response and like the way that it changed someone's way of thinking, even if they didn't have anything that they were changing in their life, just the perspective I gave them of where I was at five months before stood with them. I know that story stood with them. And I started to feel power in my worthiness here. You know, like this, this can help. This can change, you know, like this can maybe change someone's perspective, seeing me the way I was and not getting to that point because it's the truth that you start feeling those symptoms. It's like you're only lying to yourself when you keep going any further. The the inevitable will come where you're in that bed. And I found a, a true meaning in my sense of humor from when I was like recovering. I started just having fun. I felt like, you know, like, you know if, if I don't live, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to laugh. With that, and then trying to put my story out there, I just, I started to feel a, a sense of worth and in, in, in seeing that so many more people go through what I went through than I thought. There's been people that have sent me pictures of themselves with yellow eyes and people that are in the hospital and people that have lost family members in the same situation I was in on such a higher level than I could ever imagine. Because the original thought to me here in America as a teenager the worst thing that could come from alcohol was alcohol poisoning. And the second worst thing could be, you know, liver failure. But after years and years and years and years of abuse, which at 36, I didn't feel like I wore that time out. And I never knew that I could just knock my liver completely out of the game and almost die. You know, like I, I don't feel like many people know that that's a possibility. You know, they figure they'll just get sick and go get their stomach pumped or it'll be alcohol poisoning. And you go get an IV, you're hydrated and you're better. It's not like that. You know, you, you reach a point where your body, your liver shuts down and so does every other organ behind it. I've, I've just been really, really grateful 
and happy to hear um the like the positive things people have had to say about my my experience and you're you're amazing mate and, and you know this is slightly longer than a lot of my podcasts but your your story is so important to hear and i'd love to round it off with where you are exactly now uh and if you could give any advice to people who are struggling with their alcohol is there anything you can say i would say to anybody who's having troubles with alcohol which even to where i'm at now to now i'm i'm sober but i still i face the same thoughts and rations that that come up especially when it comes to trying to be out there and 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 trying to be social it's it's just such a normal thing wherever you go for Christ's sake i mean at least here in america you, you get a glass of wine to sip on when you go to church on sunday you know like um when you go up to the altar and you you take bread it's like it's just it's such a normal thing and i know that at least for myself it makes me feel awkward sometimes like i can't partake in this massive social setting of like-minded people that maybe all don't have problems with this and it it feels like you're like a kid being left out you know at least that's the the the, the way my mentality works but then i also know that it's such a setback mentally spiritually clarity wise you know like you you build so much momentum when you're sober and all the clarity and all the things that come into your life that are positive start flowing in even one time will will make me feel set back i'm like damn i took 50 steps forward i just took 25 back but i i do also give myself grace i don't beat myself up because i can't victimize myself to my own trauma that's how i feel it's like okay i'm i make a mistake i need to fucking stop again put myself back in perspective and get back to the mentality of this is only going to make things worse this isn't going to help any situation whatsoever no matter how i rationalize that it may increase the level of how i enjoy a social setting it's it's not going to no matter how much you lie to yourself and i would say to people you know like face yourself when you're there full of anxiety and shaking and in disparity looking for something to cure that soak in the feelings of 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 that go go through those feelings you know cry and and scream and and let it out or go to a gym go for a walk let it out in a in a positive manner of coping and then and for anyone who doesn't stop drinking don't use drinking as like a, a coping mechanism if you drink when you're upset you're just you you're you're tending to a habit of when you're upset you you're going to need a drink have grace i mean people don't just drink when they're upset they drink when they're when they're happy the the reward isn't it you know like there's so many excuses and reasons we use for drinking commiserate grieving celebrating good day bad day mike and you have to wrap it up man but keep on doing what you're doing mate every single day one day at a time i have so much respect for you and i think you're amazing i really do i mean that with all my heart Thank you Dave. You're ama- you're amazing too man. Yeah, I appreciate you very much and I enjoy watching your your videos and your posts and I appreciate everything you're doing and Sarah too. You know, Sarah's an a, a amazing person and her story is amazing. We're all amazing. I mean, when you look around, this is why I love the community 
And it's important to say, you know, uh, what you said earlier about what to do. It's also connection is so important. I believe that. And this is how we've chatted today, how all the thousands of people will be listening to you today and remember your story and follow you and, and wish you all the very best. The connection is a huge part, you know, and all in our own way, whatever we, we do to beat this terrible drug is amazing. And I, you know, one day I just hope that without banging the drum, more and more people will see the light around what this is, a bit like smoking where, you know, you say you don't smoke now and no one bats an eyelid. You say you don't drink and it's like, what? what's, what's the matter with you? Absolutely. You know, we're, we're really going to change that. Um, and I think, you know, collaboratively we can. Thank you, Mike, so much, mate, for joining me today. Let's stay in touch, my brother. Appreciate you very much. Thank you very much, Dave. And one thing with this last is, like you said, we we are all amazing. I think everybody that's alive, especially in the people that have faced hardships with addiction and mental health, because people tell me all the time, like, uh, like they say this, you're a miracle. And, you know, like what you went through is a miracle. And I just feel like we all are. We have all, like, there's nothing special about me. We're all walking miracles that, you know, are contributing to to the push of bettering people and kind of getting rid of what's slowly killing a lot of people that no one talks about, you know? Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, it's my pleasure, mate. And that's why we need to keep talking. You stay strong, Mikey boy. You too, Dave. Thank you very much. Be good. God bless. See you soon, mate. Take care, brother. Bye, mate. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave on the Apple and Google Play Store and on there you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking and there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums you can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave please remember to join me for next week's episode but until then thanks for listening and have a great week